Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin is an assistant professor of medicine, a practicing internal medicine physician, a competitive powerlifter, and a strength coach based in San Antonio, Texas. He completed his undergrad degree in chemistry at the College of William and Mary, his doctorate in medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School, and internal medicine residency at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Uh, Austin has many interests in his field, but today we're going to be focusing on sarcopenia and the application of strength training for treating it. I especially enjoyed this conversation today for a number of reasons. Sarcopenia is a major aspect of my own PhD research, and the more I've learned about it, the more I realize just how important it is that we study it and communicate its importance to the general population. To that end, Austin is an amazing communicator, and you'll learn what I mean by that once you listen to this episode. He really is able to simplify the causes and the science behind sarcopenia while still highlighting its relevance for us all. Uh, on top of that, he also does an amazing job of explaining that while the strategies to combat sarcopenia may be simple, getting people to actually put them to use is a lot more complicated. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I learned a lot from Austin. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it really helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak, and that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, maybe a coach or someone interested in, in helping people with sarcopenia, please let them know about it, and maybe it can be of some use to them. So, on to this conversation with Austin. Let's talk science. Austin, how are you doing? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm absolutely delighted to, to have you on, uh, on with us today. Um, just for, for anybody who might not be familiar with, with you, um, would you be able to give us just a little bit of background on um, who you are and, and what you do, please? Yeah, so uh, I am an internal medicine uh, physician in the United States, uh, assistant professor of medicine at my institution. I work clinically uh, in an inpatient hospital setting, taking care of, uh, you know, uh, typically quite sick uh, patients who need to be admitted to the hospital. I also do some outpatient consultation work. I do. Um, I also coach and work and create content with an organization called Barbell Medicine that people may have uh, heard of through my Instagram. And... Um, Let's see, what else do I do? Yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of teaching, traveling, coaching, things like that, yeah. Pretty busy guy. Yeah, yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to be. Um, so just so it's, it's great to be speaking with you um, because I, it's in th with this particular topic, it's going to be great to get your input um, from the medical side of things as a clinician, as somebody who works with patients and, and as a, an educator in, in medicine as well. Um, just out of curiosity, how, how did you kind of make the decision to, to get into medicine? Oh, boy. Uh, that was uh, something that had been a target of mine, I think, since fairly early in life. And I think that as I progressed through my education, I found that um, a lot of the things that I was good at, um, you know, 
succeeded, you know, academically in scientific fields and things like that, it ended up being a good, a good fit for me and, and an area where um, I thought I could do, I, you know, a lot of good, it would be a good fit for my, my interests and, and um, uh, you know, career path. And so that has proven to be the case. In particular, you know, there are a lot of ways you can go in, in medicine, you can go to fields that are more clinical or less clinical, you can go into fields working with adults or with kids or, or you know, surgical or non-surgical, um, academic, private practice, things like that. And so where I've landed in my, you know, academic practice in a hospital setting with highly complex patients where I get to see complicated things, see interesting things and teach, um, you know, upcoming students and residents, um, it kind of fits all around what I, what I like to do, so... Fantastic. It's, I think it's, it's always good when you can find a career that is really kind of uh, ticking all the, the boxes that you, you, you want to achieve. Um, another thing that is, is particularly interesting about you, and, and we'll get into it in a little bit more detail um, as the conversation develops, but uh, you're also a, an avid powerlifter and a powerlifting coach. And could you tell us a little bit about your, your background in powerlifting? Yeah. Well, so I've been an athlete in some form for my whole life. I started playing sports as a very little kid and swam for a long time uh, competitively through the college level. And then uh, after I finished swimming, I had to find something else to do. So I came across the, the barbell and started training. And then since I had coached a lot of the other sports, I'd included, I'd coached swimming, um, you know, for a long time during that period of, uh, of time. Um, it kind of evolved where as I learned more and, and got more experienced and kind of advanced in the lifting world, it was kind of a natural transition to start teaching and coaching, you know, because that's what I do with everything else that I get kind of comfortable with. And so that's kind of led to where, where I am now. So, yeah. Um, and ju just out of curiosity, so I, I think when people get into, let's say, the lifting lifestyle, obviously people get in, involved, interested in, in the nutrition side of things as well. And uh, more interested in how their lifestyle can affect their health long term. Um, and just, again, because you, you are a, a doctor, because you're a clin clin clinician, do you feel that that side of your, let's say, of your personality, that side of your life um, is, is kind of enriching your, your medical practice as well? Yeah, so first and most obviously from my own perspective, it helps keep me sane when things are crazy, um, like maybe during COVID times when I'm taking care of, you know, uh, inpatients with COVID and things like that, among other things, um, having a place to, to go train and kind of clear your head is, is always very helpful. Additionally, I just think that, and this has been borne out in some of the evidence on, you know, when it comes to lifestyle and, and behavior change interventions that, um, physicians or, or healthcare professionals who kind of walk the walk, so to speak, their, their advice and recommendations is more readily taken up to the extent that it is taken up by on the on the patient side. So comparing, you know, a physician who is an active, uh, you know, active smoker has, has obesity has a lot of other medical complications, um, them giving out advice uh, is not typically as well received from the patient side as is somebody who actually kind of walks the walk. And so I try to do that, not only that, but it also helps me, you know, because I teach this very same stuff to my residents and students try to get them observing, you know, our patients and, and saying, oh, this patient looks thin and frail. What kind of interventions do you think might be able to help them, you know, with this kind of thing? And then helping them recognize that, hey, that's something that you should probably do if you want to try to avoid that same being in that same situation in the future and modeling it for your patients and things like that, because then you can at least speak from a position of experience as far as what it's like to, to do this stuff. So, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, 
I think it would be great uh, if, if more doctors were, uh, let's say, a little bit more concerned about their own lifestyle. Um, and one would, one would hope that they would be, but uh, like you said, it, do, it doesn't play out always that way. So it's great to see that, you know, guys like yourself and, and everybody else in, in barbell medicine doing that and kind of walking the walk, as, uh, as you mentioned. Just just because I mentioned it there briefly, barbell medicine is an organization you're involved with. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with them, what, what is barbell medicine and what do you guys do? Yeah, so it's an organization that started by a friend and colleague uh, named Jordan Feigenbaum. He's a, he's a physician as well. We went to the same medical school. Um, and he wanted to create this organization that would serve uh, an educational role, would provide coaching as far as a lot of these lifestyle kind of interventions that we, that we talk a lot about. And so that has grown over the past probably 10 years or so, a little more. Um, we've added a whole bunch more staff, clinicians, other coaches, um, to guide people through these very lifestyle things that we try to uh, instill in, in, in the general population and our patients and in our clients. So that's kind of what we do. We travel around, we teach, we coach, a lot of things like that. Fantastic. Um, so obviously we've spoken about powerlifting, we've spoken about lifestyle intervention, um, and that's going to be a major aspect of this conversation today because today we want to speak about um, something that I know you're particularly interested in yourself or something I'm particularly interested in and probably more people should be interested in too. And that is um, sarcopenia. Yeah. And just for, for anybody who may not be familiar with the term, uh, could you tell us a little bit about sarcopenia, what, what it is and maybe a little bit about how relevant it is? Yeah. So, so the term uh, describes a situation where an individual has a decrease in muscle mass and more importantly, it's, becoming increasingly recognized, a decrease in muscle function. Uh, and it's something that can happen for a variety of reasons. Um, it can be, it can, it's something that can happen with just general aging and, and inactivity. It's something that can happen in the context of a particular disease process. Um, it can happen, like I said, uh, for, for a whole variety of reasons. And it, oh, you know, the, the evidence base around sarcopenia has really blown up in the past few years. There's now multiple international working groups looking into it. Um, becoming more and more an area of active research, uh, mainly because of how important it seems to be all the tight correlations that it is showing with poor health outcomes, um, rates of disease, poor outcomes with disease, earlier you know death. Uh, uh, so basically what we call morbidity and mortality outcomes are much worse for patients with sarcopenia compared to those who do not have sarcopenia. And, you know, it's, it's, even more importantly than, than that association is that there are interventions that can be done to mitigate that process and thus, you know, improve people's outcomes across a whole variety of disease processes. Just about every one that you can think of, there's some amount of, of evidence pertaining to people who have higher levels of muscle mass and muscle function tend to do better than those who have less, um, you know, within, within reasonable, uh, you know, physiologic ranges, I should say. Um, so that's why it's super important. And it, you know, obviously there's some natural tie-in to my other interest with respect to powerlifting in that resistance training is a way to, to intervene upon this process. Although it doesn't have to be obviously, you know, barbell based powerlifting as, as the intervention, but you know, resistance training is one of the fundamental interventions. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. Um, and then the question becomes like, how do we actually get people to do this to, to actually improve, either improve their sarcopenia if they have it or um, mitigate its development altogether. Fantastic. And if we're talking about the development of sarco sarcopenia, obviously it's, it's a disease that's associated with aging. Um, but when does sarcopenia tend to manifest in people? And I know it can vary between individuals depending on a lot of different factors. 
what, if we were to kind of throw out a, a rough number there, when does it tend to, to develop in people and when does it tend to become, let's say, clinically significant? Yeah. Yeah, you're right that there's a ton of variability here. There, you know, there are some average trends across the lifespan. There's some, some, you know, plenty of data that would indicate people's lean body mass and their strength tends to increase in the first few decades of life, maybe into the well into the 30s or so. And then um, as you get a little bit past that into the 40s, into the 50s, you start to see a slight decline. So it's estimated around like a three to 8% muscle loss per decade after age 30. But that is in particular for people who are inactive. Once you get to age 50 or so, that rate accelerates. And so uh, it will accelerate, obviously, again, to varying rates between individuals. But you can end up with a really substantial amount of total muscle mass lost uh, by the time you get to 80, for example. And I would say that somewhere in that range, in, in that you know, 50 to 80 range, even though it's a broad range, is where we start to see more and more clinical manifestations of this alongside a lot of the common, you know, comorbid kind of disease states that tend to develop cardiovascular disease and cancer and things like that that tend to emerge in those age ranges. Um, however, I will say that depending on the individual and if they have one of these uh, other medical conditions, particularly if those develop earlier in life, I mean, I've seen people who are frankly sarcopenic and severe stage cachexia in their 20s or 30s, maybe if they have bad, if they develop uh, cancer early on, if they have an untreated HIV, AIDS, you know, infection, something like that, that can lead to uh, sarcopenia and, and these kind of negative outcomes way earlier in life, potentially. But I would say on average, that like, late, you know, latter, latter part um, is where we tend to see it being the most uh, prevalent and the most clinically significant. And, you know, in my day to day work, that's it's typically what leads me, you know, say I admit and treat somebody in the hospital for a particular condition could be as simple as a pneumonia, could be as significant as septic shock or something like that. But when they have sarcopenia, it's something that will more often lead me to say, you're not safe to go home from the hospital. I'm going to have to recommend that you go to a rehab facility or to a nursing home or something like that, because you're too, you know, you don't you don't have the requisite strength and functional capacity to take care of yourself at home. And that's not a situation that any patient enjoys or wants to be in. But that's where a lot of people find themselves when they have sarcopenia and they go through an acute illness or have a chronic disease state. Um, they end up losing their independence and, and their freedom effectively because they end up stuck in nursing homes, you know, needing other people to take care of them. Um, I think like, so, so you know, obviously you mentioned that it's, it's starting as early, it could potentially starting as early as the 40s when we're noticing that decline in muscle mass and obviously that associates decline in, in strength as well. Um, and I don't know about the younger people listening to this, but for me, that's terrifying because I'm not, I'm not far away from 40 right now. So that means like I, I got to start paying attention. Uh, hopefully by the end of this conversation, people will realize that, you know, this is something that we can kind of, um, we can like mitigate as, as we're moving forward. But I, I think that what, what you said there about people who are suffering from, let's say uh, an acute con condition where somebody is, is bedridden for a while is particularly relevant um, because uh, I think some of the research at the moment is saying that um, in, let's say, uh, community-dwelling older people, the rates of sarcopenia are much higher. And generally in those populations, you, you see a lot of older people who are, um, you know, in beds and lying down and, and not being active. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's kind of, we've got this condition where um, things just start snowballing, where people become a little bit less active, they start losing muscle mass. Um, but that kind of brings me on to the next part of this, which is uh, how does this condition develop? How does sarcopenia develop? How is it that we go from a stage where we're, we're 
building and developing muscle into our 30s, like you mentioned. Um, and then suddenly things start to change gradually and then more rapidly over time. Why, are, why does sarcopenia occur? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that there are numerous complicated mechanisms that all kind of coalesce to result in the emergence of this, uh, this disease state. One very obvious one that you can think of is simply you can view it from from uh, like a social standpoint. And that is that in general, in the first few decades of people's lives, people tend to be way more physically active. And then you get into your 30s and you're working your you know cubicle desk job and then you go home and you sit on the couch and you watch TV at night and then you repeat most days of the week, most of the months of the year. And that physical activity naturally tends to decline. And then you get into midlife and you have kids and maybe you've put on a few more pounds and activity goes down further and further. And then you, div- you, know, you have a, an ache in your knee and your doctor diagnoses you with osteoarthritis. And then you say, I have bad knees and I can't do this anymore. And then it just could, I mean, see this all the time. Um, so, but there's some, definitely some social mechanisms at play there because the main thing, the, 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 the main common factor here, I think, is going to be physical inactivity. So you can see how kids, you know, a 10-year-old is going to, in general, going to be more physically active, although, you know, increasingly we have rates of pediatric, um, you know, physical inactivity tying in with, with uh, pediatric obesity. But um, they're going to be more, in general, on average, more active than somebody who's 50 in their midlife, again, work in their regular job. So, so physical inactivity is a, is a big one. There are obviously also just some natural biological processes that, that develop and go on over time. Um, you know, cellular senescence and things like that, particularly in the older, older uh, age ranges. But the other thing is, and this also ties in with physical inactivity is as people develop uh, medical conditions, um, those can kind of play into sarcopenia by inducing a state of what's called anabolic resistance. So there are a number of conditions like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, carrying excess body fat, uh, anybody who develops cancer, cardiovascular disease, any of these things, they're in general chronic inflammatory states. And chronic inflammation is one mechanism um, that can actually blunt people's sensitivity to an anabolic stimulus. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if you give them a stimulus of physical activity, if you have them go and lift a weight, if they're healthy and 20, they're going to respond to that stimulus much more robustly in terms of building muscle, building strength compared to somebody who is otherwise inactive the other 23 and a half hours of the day who has some ongoing chronic systemic inflammation, their response to that stimulus is blunted. And so that can be overcome by changing dosing, and that comes into play with respect to programming exercise. But this anabolic resistance um, that, can, that can occur with aging, with inactivity, with chronic disease, and even more dramatically, like you mentioned, with these acute illnesses of people are bedbound, um, that can generate a profound amount of anabolic resistance where you are just breaking down muscle and you're completely resistant to, to wanting to build any, any muscle or strength in those situations. These, like you said, snowball. It's a little, it, you know, you don't become sarcopenic overnight. You can lose a lot of muscle mass really fast if, you're, if you, you know, have a critical illness. Um, like if you end up in the medical ICU with, you know, a, a horrible case of, you know, influenza or something like that. But in general, for most of the situations we see, it's a long-term snowballing process over the lifespan, and it might be punctuated uh, by episodes that have been referred to in some stage, uh, cases in the literature as a, as a catabolic crisis, meaning you're snowballing throughout the lifespan, and then you get an acute illness, you drop some muscle mass, you might recover a little of it, but not all the way, and so you keep going downhill, you have a, another illness, you lose more muscle mass, you might not recover all of it, and it keeps snowballing until the point where 
I admit you to the hospital when you're 70 years old for a case of pneumonia. And then when I treat you and I'm ready to send you home, I say, hey, can you stand up out of a chair? And you can't stand up out of a chair. And I'm like, well, looks like you're stuck going to a nursing home at this point. Um, it's basically this lifelong process that gets there. And so that's kind of why I emphasize when I talked about the, you know, when it's when muscle mass and strength starts to decline, the caveat there is those percentages, those rates of muscle mass decline, those are for inactive adults. This stuff can be forestalled a whole lot if you stay extremely active throughout uh, throughout the lifespan. Um, but that's another reason why it's so important for people to, to stay active. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And, and we'll, we'll get into that kind of the preventative um, aspect of, of exercise and some other um, uh, measures as well uh, in, in a moment. One thing I wanted to, to, to kind of just touch on there. So obviously you're, you're, we, we've, we've spoken about this uh, snowballing effect whereby a, we're seeing this progressive loss of muscle. And then you mentioned, you know, where you get to the stage where somebody's having these catabolic crises where they're losing muscle. They get to a point where they become incredibly frail. They're not able to function on their own. And then they get put into like you said, a nursing home. And right. that kind of just strikes me as, you know, you're, you're, and it's a terrible way of saying it, it's almost like putting the nail in the coffin because you're putting somebody into a situation where they're going to be even more inactive, which is going to lead to further uh, anabolic resistance, further inactivity, and further loss of muscle. Would that be right? Yeah, I, w I would say that's right. Um, it, it's unfortunate that it's right because it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and so, so what I mean by that is, you know, even in the hospital, um, uh, where I, where I spend a lot of my time, we have access to physical therapists in the hospital. Um, but when it's been studied, you know, in an acute hospitalization, it's estimated that patients spend about 83% of their hospital time in bed and then 12% of the, of the remaining time in a chair, right? So that's 95% of the time that's either in bed or in a chair, now we have resources to get them up and mobilized and moving. The problem is we don't have enough of those resources. So for example, the hospitals are, tip, are very often understaffed in terms of physical therapists and, fo and, and, and nursing and, and folks who are available to get patients up and about and moving and things like that, right? And the same thing applies to these nursing homes and, and rehabilitation facilities where not only are they understaffed with respect to having enough people to devote, dedicate enough time to exercising and moving these patients around, but additionally, uh, the interventions that are offered to these patients in terms of exercise are typically very underdosed, right? And so you might have somebody who has an active infection lying in bed for, you know, two days, they're anabolically resistant on anabolic resistance, and your intervention for them is to, you know, like dangle their legs off the bed and extend their knees, you know, lift their lift their lower legs up and, and bend their knees again. That's not sufficiently dosed in terms of an exercise intervention to generate ad any adaptation um, in almost anybody, but definitely in somebody who's very anabolically resistant. So I think that, uh, you know, there is a way by which the hospital setting and the post-acute rehab setting, um, the interventions could be intensified such that we would get better outcomes. But as it is right now, based on evidence that I cited in, in one of my talks on this, about two thirds of patients are discharged from that post-acute care, meaning they're done with their hospital, then they go to a rehab facility, they're discharged from the rehab facility below the level of function that they were at before they ever got hospitalized in the first place. And once again, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way it is. <laughs> It, it, it's it's a little bit scary because obviously you know 
you've spoken about the, the lack of resources for for dealing with this. But when you think about the fact that we're in uh, a society where people are getting older um, and people are getting older and potentially not getting, uh, they're not maintaining health as well as they should be throughout their years. So we're, could, would it be fair enough to say that we're potentially looking at something that is a bit of a public health crisis? And, and I'm trying to say that in a way that's not overly sensationalistic, but, but trying to be realistic at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's accurate in that it's something that is snowballing the same way that sarcopenia snowballs for a person. This is snowballing like on a societal level. And, and unfortunately, you know, the, the allocation of scarce resources that, is, uh, that results in some tough decisions needing to be, needing to be made on the, the policy level. Um, and that policy needs to be informed by adequate evidence, you know, and, and so unfortunately, that's not oftentimes the way resources are allocated is based on any semblance of, you know, quality, quality evidence. But it seems to me that, um, you know, when we say that two thirds of patients are discharged from rehab before they their level of function from before they're ever, ever hospitalized, we know that that results in about 20% of those patients being readmitted within 30 days to the hospital. And hospitalization is an extremely expensive thing to go through. And so, you know, if the, if, if, in, if uh, insurance or the government or whatever is going to be paying for somebody to be re-hospitalized as a result of their sarcopenia, maybe some of those resources, if they were dedicated towards intervening on this process more effectively, could reduce costs all around. But that takes like second, third, fourth order thinking that is difficult <laughs> and complicated. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, the policymakers tend to be quite uh, far removed from the actual situation, the evidence around the the situation, whatever they may be. Um, yeah. But let's not get into that because that could be a very depressing conversation. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, one thing that you you touched on, obviously, is you spoke about anabolic resistance and some of the, the possible reasons for why people can develop this anabolic resistance. And you spoke about it within the context of um, it reducing the effectivity of certain stimuli on. Um, uh, anabolism on, on helping people to build muscle mass and you spoke about exercise um, would you be able to touch a little bit on how anabolic resistance can also affect the nutritional side of things and the, the effect uh, that you know what, pe what people eat can have on how they develop muscle as well sure yeah the main anabolic stimuli that we can get from our diet in addition to just having sufficient energy intake in general is going to be dietary amino acids um, and that's something that the the Dietary guidelines, of course, these vary, you know, country by country. I'm not sure necessarily what, what they are, uh, what the recommendations are where you are. But in the, in the U.S., the dietary guidelines with respect to protein intake have typically centered around about 0.8 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And that's just for all individuals all the time at any point in life, at any point in terms of disease state or, or, or not. And so that guideline fails to account for uh, the potential of anabolic resistance, dietary, you know, protein quality, so to speak. And so we have, you know, multiple lines of evidence at this point that show improvement in outcome, uh, in, in various outcomes with higher levels of intake, typically somewhere in the range of about 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, and in some situations with very, very profound anabolic resistance, you know, you may even get additional benefit from going higher. Um, 
depending on depending on the individual uh, patient situation. But this has definitely been experimentally, you know, verified in terms of muscle protein synthetic responses at varying doses of intake. So they'll give somebody who with, with anabolic resistance or, or a chronic disease state, they might give them a meal with a bolus of 0 0.2 uh, grams of protein per kilo body weight, and you might not see much of a, of a response. And then they double it up to 0.4 grams per kilo uh, body weight for that meal. And suddenly they mount a response that looks just like a younger, healthier person gets with the lower dose, um, i.e. the person who's more sensitive. So just like uh, the dosage of exercise and activity is super important in terms of actually eliciting physiologic effects here, the dosage of dietary protein as your other kind of uh, uh, main anabolic stimulus, the dosage of that matters uh, arguably just as much um, if you want to actually elicit the physiologic responses you're aiming for. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's, it's at this point in the conversation that we, got, we, we almost get into a conversation that is... is <laughs> You know, it's used term very, very bro-like in that we're, we're talking about what's the, the best way to maximize muscle gain in, in an individual. But it, it, it's also a very, very serious situation. Um, uh, so we're, we're going to, at some point, we will get into actually what we're going to do. But we've spoken about exercise and the reduction in exercise being key to the development of sarcopenia. And we've spoken about anabolic resistance affecting the way or the amount of protein that somebody would need to, to maintain muscle as well. Um, so those are two like really, really key points that we're going to get back to. But before we do that, I, I do want to touch on, and you've, you've mentioned some of them already, but I, I want to talk about some of the other conditions that sarcopenia is, is often associated with. Um, and I, I suppose the first one, and, and, and you mentioned it quite, uh, just a couple of moments ago, was uh, people losing strength and losing their ability to, to kind of stand up or get out of a chair, um, which is frailty. And could you just talk a little bit about the significance of, of, of frailty in an aging population? Yeah, so, so whereas sarcopenia refers specifically to muscle mass and muscle function, frailty is used to describe more of kind of this general syndrome that we see where people have a loss of physical function in general, a loss of independence, a loss of... Uh, vigor <laughs> in terms of their 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 daily life um, and and the consequences of that are really profound um, because you know in terms of what it means to be a human uh, somebody who is autonomous able to take care of themselves do the things that they want to do um, all of those things can be stripped away from you in that kind of a situation and not stripped away in a malicious sense but out of necessity because you can't do these things for yourself. Um, whether it, and, and, and this gets even more complex if you have somebody with frailty who then um, perhaps as a result of some of these other chronic lifestyle issues, they're at higher risk for developing some sort of cognitive impairment, then you lose effectively everything, right? So if you uh, have cardiovascular disease, you have a stroke, you have some cognitive impairment as a result of some vascular dementia kind of processes and you're physically frail, there, you can't do anything. You can't take care of anything about your own existence. And then you're going to be trapped in an institution um, unless your family or caretakers um, are willing to go out of their way to take care of you effectively 24-7 to manage your physiologic needs, um, to make sure that you're able to wipe yourself or to get to the bathroom or to put clothes on, to brush your teeth, to eat, to cook, to do anything at all. Um, and so that's kind of what I find um, most striking about this and why I talk and teach and emphasize it so much is it is such a profoundly dehumanizing thing to have this 
Um, but that those consequences are kind of kept tucked away from people in society, meaning most people don't see just how bad things can get in this kind of a situation. Because like I said, you get tucked away into a nursing home and then nobody ever sees you except for the people who work in the nursing home and maybe a family member if they come visit you, right? The, but the consequences of physical frailty and developing bed sores and, and ulcers that eat away into your backside and those get infected and you come to the hospital recurrent, you know, repeatedly and you end up needing amputations and all kinds of just ho horrendous stuff that I wish more people could could see how bad it gets. But really, unfortunately, it's just either people who are in healthcare who see this stuff or, you know, relatives of family members who are affected who see how bad it gets. And at that point, it's pretty much too late. So if you want to maintain any degree of your own kind of humanity and independence, autonomy, um, then that's kind of why this is so important. Absolutely. Um, and that is a kind of a, a terrifying but very, very much needed um, explanation of kind of the relevance of this. Um, you, you also touched on, uh, you, just, you briefly mentioned things like that, an increased risk of diabetes and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease um, that are associated with, with, with sarcopenia. And, and there, you know, you could get into huge conversations about all of the, the other associated conditions and just how they're related to a lack of muscle mass. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just down to it's an association with caused by the association of lifestyle factors that lead to sarcopenia that are associated with these other conditions. Um, but on top of uh, things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, frailty, um, what other things uh, are associated with, with uh, sarcopenia that people might not consider? Yeah, and, and I would point out that a lot of these relationships are to some extent kind of bidirectional and or self-perpetuating. So, so an example might be, you know, muscle mass is one of our biggest kind of energy consuming or, uh, organs in our body. If you, you can conceptualize muscle as an organ itself, and that ends up being kind of a metabolic sink for glucose and fatty acids and things like that to be used. And so on one hand, if you lose a ton of muscle mass, the size of that metabolic sink for the utilization of glucose is gone and you can end up getting some, you know, metabolic dysfunction uh, uh, just as a result of, of that in terms of, you know, uh, insulin resistance and, and, and diabetes tendencies if you don't have any tissue around to use up the glucose, right? And then on the other hand, the, the inflammatory state that is generated by having diabetes itself inhibits anabolism and, and the ability to build muscle mass. So the, the, there's kind of bi-directional causal relationships going in both directions there. And that's, and then that ends up getting perpetuated. So say the person with diabetes, that itself is a super common high risk factor or metabolic syndrome in general for developing cardiovascular disease. Say you develop cardiovascular disease, and then as a result of that coronary artery disease, you get chest pain with exercise. You get anginal chest pain, and you're so mortified about what that means that you then just do less because every time you move around or try to take a few steps around your house or take the stairs, you start getting crushing chest pain. Right. So, so, so that is another way by which the disease can lead to sarcopenia and sarcopenia can contribute to the, to the disease process. So you're right. Cardiovascular disease is a big one. Uh, cancer has a ton of um, kind of lifestyle related uh, um, kind of contributions, although I'll say obviously cancer is not a monolith. So that so there are some cancers that are purely genetic or childhood cancers, leukemia. I'm not really talking about those here, but there are plenty of malignancies that are associated with, you know, carrying excess body fat, other lifestyle behaviors, things like that. 
Um, musculoskeletal stuff is a big one. I mean, musculoskeletal uh, um, health and, and, and issues are among the biggest causes of disability in the world, particularly low back pain. Um, and that is something that can end up posing a pretty substantial barrier to exercise and physical activity in folks, particularly if they're told very negative, scary things about what back pain means. They may be extremely reluctant to engage in physical activity and exercise or osteoarthritis. So, so you know, I work uh, actually in a, a, a military setting. And so there's lots of people who, you know, they may go through their active duty military career, and maybe they had to jump out of planes or maybe they did some deployments and they developed some some knee pain and then they get out of the, the military service and they get diagnosed with osteoarthritis and they think, oh, I have bad knees because of my because of what I did. And so then they do less. They gain some weight. They gain more weight. They develop fatty liver disease. The fatty liver disease progresses to cirrhosis. And then before they know it, they're 60 or 70 years old. And I'm admitting them to the hospital for decompensated cirrhosis. And they've lost all their muscle mass and they're cachectic and they have all these horrific complications. I mean, um, obviously, uh, I can I can uh, uh, come up with any number of these scenarios, not in any way because they're hypothetical, but because they're things that I actually see every day. So I can, you know, I can tie this together with just about every organ system, COPD, chronic, you know, smoking related lung disease is associated with sarcopenia, massive inflammatory state. Um, uh, so I think of heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, chronic kidney disease, uh, uh, also associated with wasting syndromes, particularly in its end stages when patients are on dialysis. Um, and that's a situation where patients are not particularly active. I mentioned cancer, other chronic infections, um, HIV, again, rheumatic diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, post-stroke patients, neuromuscular diseases, where, you know, patients are either are functionally impaired, and then they do less, and then they lose more function, and then they do less, and they lose more function, and they do less. Um, so, yeah, I can go head to toe, uh, but safe to say that most, and, and I see and treat all of these conditions, that most of them are in some way or, or another uh, intimately related with muscle mass, physical activity, functional capacity. You must be really fun at parties. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, as long as everybody trains, then we're good. <laughs> uh, and and, and this, this is, I think, one of the, if I can say this, um, the beautiful points about sarcopenia is that we do have the potential within our reach to, to do something about this that can, that can greatly reduce somebody's risk of developing sarcopenia and then potentially developing all of these other associated comorbidities that we're talking about here. Um, so you've, you've touched on the, the importance of uh, physical activity and you touched on the importance of, well, one aspect of nutrition. If we're to look at this in, in terms of dealing with this, what are some of the strategies, let's say, uh, if, we, if we speak in, in some more concrete terms, what are some of the strategies that we can use to, to reduce the risk of sarcopenia and potentially kind of um, completely counter sarcopenia in older individuals? Yes, this is, this is the hard part, right? So it's, it's easy to identify sarcopenia, relatively speaking, when it's clinically significant. It's easy to, to talk about mechanisms and the pathophysiology and all this stuff, but um, actually intervening upon it um, is much easier said than done. Um, and that's because ultimately this comes down to behavior change. Um, and not only does it come down to behavior change, but it also uh, ties into a lot of other topics about an individual's kind of psychosocial state and their socioeconomic situation. 
right? And this is something that I'm sure you're very familiar with from the nutrition side of things in terms of trying to, you know, improve dietary patterns, people's access to healthy food, their access, their, their, their knowledge of skills in terms of healthy food preparation, and all that kind of stuff that are that are culturally influenced, that are learned behaviors from how you were raised from your, your parents, from the people around you, um, just kind of life habits in general. And the same thing applies to physical activity, right? There, there are plenty of cultures where deliberate physical exercise is not really a thing, right? Or you might live or be in a situation where socioeconomically, you maybe don't have access to to what you perceive to uh, as needs in terms of places where you can go exercise. Maybe it's not safe to go outside in where in the neighborhood where you live to go exercise. So this is something that, you know, um, it, it, it's not just at the individual level, there's factors all the way up to kind of society in general that can influence uh, somebody's likelihood or ability to engage in uh, uh, physical activity. But again, those, uh, those topics are, are, way too complex and they become politically charged, which I generally try to, to stay away from when I can. So if we're going to talk about factors at the individual level, this comes down to things like their education. Do they know that this is a thing that's worth addressing? Do they know how to exercise? Um, do they have uh, uh, any sense that they can take control of this situation? And that ultimately is like the big underlying factor that I talk about a lot in terms of self-efficacy basically the sense that somebody has that they can actually control, exert any degree of control over the situation. Do they have the skills? Do they have the knowledge? Do they have the strategies to actually attack this problem? Or are they, do they basically have like kind of learned helplessness? There's nothing that they know. They don't think they can control this situation. They need somebody else to take care of this issue or take care of them. Um, and they don't feel like there's anything they can do. Um, that presents an enormous barrier. And so when it comes to how do we actually attack this problem in terms of altering people's physical activity habits and their nutrition habits, step one is, you know, this is kind of classic motivational interviewing uh, uh, kind of topic that, that clinicians get, get trained in, is assessing where is this person at in terms of a lot of these factors? Where are they at in terms of their understanding of this as an issue in terms of their willingness to make any kind of behavior change? They might be completely unwilling or uninterested to do anything about this, um, which presents a really big challenge for somebody because if you just go out of your way to just like forcibly change this person's mind, not gonna work. Um, if they are open to it, but maybe they don't know anything about it and, they're, and they're, they want to learn, then maybe that's where you jump in with some education. If they know that it's a problem and they're educated and they've heard about this issue, but they don't know what to do about it, how do you exercise? What should that look like? Then you would enter with a specific plan for that individual who is at that stage. So that's kind of why developing skills, if you're a clinician or you're a coach or somebody who works with, with uh, patients or clients or general population folks, developing skills in this realm of motivational interviewing, behavior change, and, and guiding patients to build their self-efficacy to actually take some degree of control over their own situation, that, in my opinion, is... I, I won't say that it's a recipe for success because you're still not going to get every single person to, to do this. That's just the reality of the thing. But I think it gives you the best shot out of anything else out there. And so I think that's kind of where you need to start. 
Um, I, I often draw these analogies when I'm teaching my students and residents when we're talking about patients who act who are still uh, actively smoke. Um, you know, they when we're talking about exercise, they might say nobody listens to me about exercise. I don't bother counseling them because nobody listens to me. And I'm like, well, when you see a patient in the clinic who smokes, do you counsel them to stop smoking? And they're like, yeah, I talk about it every, I, I was taught in medical school, which we are, to bring it up and talk to the patient about it at every single visit that I see them. And I'm like, okay, how often does that person actually quit smoking? And they're like, oftentimes they don't. And I'm like, but you still keep trying, right? Um, and so it's a similar deal where you have to, if, you know, as a coach or a clinician, you can't get too disillusioned with this and get, you know, just give up on humanity. <laughs> Rather recognize that everyone's in an individual their own individual situation. You have to assess their individual situation and target that individual situation as best you can and, uh, you know, hope to change as many minds or help people change their own minds and, and actually work towards this as you can. But um, obviously that's a very roundabout answer to the overarching point of the goal here is behavior change, but behavior change is arguably more complicated than sarcopenia is itself. <laughs> so, so what you're telling me is, it's not as easy as us telling somebody to go to the gym and eat some more protein. Yeah, right. Yeah, just just go, <laughs> just go get your squat to 500 pounds and you'll be fine, right? <laughs> so, like, like what, what you said is, and, and we, had a, we, we briefly touched on this when, when we were talking before we started the actual podcast, um, is that there's so much research on sarcopenia and what causes it and potential strategies to, to solving it. Um, and, you know, we will touch on those in a, in a moment, but at the end of the day, when you're working with an individual, and I've just said it there, you're working with an individual and you really have to find ways to make lifestyle change viable for each individual. And it's going to be a different way. Um, from your perspective as a clinician, I, 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 for example, if we're talking about right now, we're, we're in, in the middle of a pandemic, it's, I can't imagine the amount of pressure and the amount of time pressure and stress that is on all of the, the clinicians working right now, yeah. you've got a limited amount of time to work with an individual. So what are some, if, if we're talking again, let's stick with sarcopenia. If you've got that limited amount of time, what are some of your big wins yeah. uh, when it comes to helping them with, with, with these lifestyle changes? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, I talk, we talk a lot about this in the context of, uh, uh, you know, rehabilitating, uh, helping patients rehab in the context of pain. Really, it comes to kind of a person-centered approach to exercise. And so what I mean by that is that I am not um, kind of trying to apply a cookie cutter on this person, tell them that this is the specific intervention that will work for you. Rather, um, taking a more person-centered approach. So, so I'll give you an example. I might see a patient with heart failure in the hospital. And I might treat them and get them ready to the point where they're, you know, just about to go home. And along the way, we've, we've already done some kind of a functional assessment. So maybe I had them try to get up out of a chair and maybe they can get up on their own, but it's a struggle. It's hard. Um, maybe they are not frail enough to need to go to a rehab facility or a nursing home or something like that. But I can tell that their functional state is not great. So I might open up a conversation with them, asking them about what kind of things did they, you know, uh, uh, do they enjoy doing? in their daily life. And a typical answer to that will be, oh, I don't do too many things these days because of my whatever. 
and say, well, what did you used to like to do? And they might give me some examples of things they used to like to do in the past, but now they perceive that they're unable to do. And I kind of offer them the possibility of, wouldn't it be nice if you were able to do some of those things again, if you were able to do this thing that was meaningful to you, that you enjoyed, that you looked forward to, that made you get up out of bed every day? And then, of course, I would love to be able to do that again. And what if there was a way that we could get you back to doing that thing that is meaningful, again, to you, the, the person? So that's kind of my main hook and my main pitch is trying to tie the intervention, i.e. some form of physical exercise to improve their functional capacity, tying it to something meaningful in their life. Because nobody is just going to get out and just go exercise with no aim, no, no purpose behind it, just because some random guy that they saw in the hospital for a couple days told them to. Rather, if they can mentally link the exercise behavior together with a desired outcome, I want to be able to pick up my grandkid again. I want to be able to go up and down my front steps to go out to the mailbox. I want to be able to walk around the grocery store myself rather than having to ask my relative to go buy all my stuff all the time, um, tying it to something meaningful that can give them some sense of accomplishment and, and, and independence, I would say still doesn't guarantee that they're going to do it. But again, it's probably the thing that's going to give you the best shot. Um, this, this, uh, this behavior that you're trying to instill needs to hold some significance and some meaning to, to the person. And so that's kind of what I mean by like a person-centered approach. So that might mean that if you get them to buy and say, sure, I'm willing to do something to gain back that functional capacity. Um, well, then it turns into a conversation of what kind of things do you have access to? What kind of things are you willing to do? Is it safe for you to go outside and do some of this stuff? Or are we limited to inside? Or do you have access to a gym? Or do you have access to a coach? Or, or you know, do you have access to some sort of external resistance in your house that you can use to try to gain some of this stuff back? Maybe you're going to, you know, hold a, a, a gallon of milk and do sit-to-stands from a chair to the point where you can actually sit and stand up out of a chair unassisted or without using your arms or something like that. And all of that along the way, as they start universally with when people do this, it doesn't take that long before they start seeing improvements, right? When, when you're that detrained, uh, when you have that little capacity, just gaining a little bit of functional ability is like world changing for them in terms of, oh, now I can actually go get my own things out of the cabinet. I can go out and get my own mail. I can do these things that you know, uh, were previously inaccessible to them. And then the beauty of it is that that itself illustrates to them, hey, I do have some degree of control over this. There is something that I can do to influence this process. And that's kind of part of how it's been shown that resistance training participation increases uh, uh, individual self-efficacy, increases their perceived control over their situation. And then there's also data showing that increases in self-efficacy predict continued adherence to the behavior long-term, which is the most important thing. So that's kind of why we center a lot of our conversations around uh, self-efficacy and, you know, that's our goal. How do we get there? Tying the behavior to something meaningful to the person. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I've, I've always found to be to be kind of uh, quite effective with people when it comes to exercise is, is gamifying things. And if we're speaking about younger individuals, um, I think it's very, very easy for a young person who's getting involved in something like powerlifting, for example, to focus on a, a number goal yeah. um, and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I want to hit, you know, bench 300 or I want to uh, squat 500, something like that. That's fine and they can do that and they can achieve it within the gym. That's great. They, they'll see their results eventually. But if you're talking with an older person and if you're, if you're saying that, okay, you can now go from a state where, you know, 
you needed a, 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 I don't even know what those machines are called for helping people get up the stairs. You needed one of those to a point where you're able to walk up the stairs themselves. It, it is almost like gamifying it, but it is gamifying it in probably one of the most effective ways possible because you just told this person, you're, you're no longer, you no longer need this assisting machine to help you get right. up there. That person is going to see that effect every single day. And like you said, that's incredibly motivating and it's something that's going to move people forward. Um, just, just because I, obviously nutrition is, is my side of things, uh, um, uh, when it comes to research, I, you, you've kind of explained how you can get somebody to potentially make changes when it comes to exercise. Now, in my experience, getting people to change their diet is another story as well. And it tends to be because, you know, people eat three or four times a day. They're very, very much used to eating. They've got ingrained patterns of eating. When it comes to helping people change their diet in the context of reducing the risk of sarcopenia, what are some of your go-tos when giving advice to older individuals? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that, like you said, this is uh, people's dietary patterns and their nutritional habits are the product of a lifetime of kind of building these kind of habits. Uh, uh, and even and, and an equally important part is their culture, you know, in terms of what foods are like normal to eat in their particular cultural background. Uh, what were they raised eating their traditional comfort foods and, and, and things like that. So uh, this is something that requires probably even more I don't know, at least as much, I'll say, individualization as the exercise prescription piece, um, because you can't just say, oh, I just want you to eat like, you know, three chicken breasts a day or something. Like, what if they're coming from a culture where, you know, chicken breast is unholy or something, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you're not allowed to eat it or something like that. Um, so it requires some individualization to their particular dietary preferences, habits, uh, uh, behaviors, things like that. And so really, if, a, if the specific focus here is around uh, uh, sarcopenia in particular, then my aim is to get them to consume some amount of protein at each meal. If I can negotiate that, then that's like my initial win. Um, and that just, even if I think it's a sub therapeutic dose of, of protein, but getting any in at, a, at, at each meal is uh, a reasonable goal for somebody in, in whom I'm trying to either mitigate the risk of sarcopenia, prevent progression, or, or even more importantly, reversing it would re definitely require uh, a higher doses once it's already established. Um, but, you know, I think that it's, I would say it's uncommon that I am in a situation where that's the only thing I'm focusing on um, as far as nutrition in interventions, because we're always trying to get people to eat more vegetables and things like that as well. So oftentimes we're, we're attempting to make a broader intervention, but if it's focused specifically on sarcopenia, yeah, my preference would be to try to get some amount of protein. Again, whatever protein maybe they like, they tolerate, is fits with their, you know, social situation, their cultural situation, protein source that they can afford, that they know how to prepare, things like that. If I can get that in at each meal, then I consider that my initial win. And I might try to, you know, aim higher from there, depending on the, the person. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's, it's not easy to get people to make changes. But like what you said there, focus on what you can do with that individual, what that person can fit into their diet. And I suppose at the end of the day, it all comes down to having proper conversations with an individual and finding out what works for them. Um, Austin, like, they, I'm, I'm going to say this straight away. This has been probably one of my favorite conversations on, on the podcast ever. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm rather biased in this, but um, thank you. you you've, you've really gone into so much detail and like just 
you've done a fantastic job of highlighting the, the relevance of this condition and also I think highlighting the fact that it is something that we can we can do something about this and and I just want to thank you very very much for that um, just because we are running out of time I just want to say um, uh, if people want to if anybody's not doing so already if people want to follow you more uh, learn a little bit more about you what, what's the best way for them to, to do that yeah, well, this Instagram account is one where I, I won't say I'm like super active posting there. I post there when I have thoughts that I think are interesting, um, but I, I have a lot of content If people go back through the posts of what I've previously thought were uh, interesting ideas. And then I write and create content on the Barbell Medicine website. So that's where I would go uh, otherwise. That's absolutely fantastic. And anybody, if, if you're not already following us, please do put out some amazing content um, as you've uh, been able to tell from listening to this. Um, Austin, I want to thank you very, very much um, for this. And uh, I just want to say, I hopefully will have the opportunity to speak again because um, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Talk to you later. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.